You're listening to Faith and Politics, presented by Helen Bay and Rachel Allison. Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm Helen. And we're the JP and House Lords interns taking part in the Methodist Church's One Internship Scheme this year. And we've decided to start a podcast. So this is our first episode of our brand new podcast, Faith in Politics. On this month's podcast, we will be interviewing the co-leader of the Green Party, Jonathan Bartley. But before that, we'll be discussing a couple of news stories and hearing from our very own Phil Jump for his monthly musings. Um, first up, before that, we have some JPIT news. On the 17th of March, coming to Manchester Central Hall, is our conference, Brave New World, Faithful Living in a Time of Change. Um, our speakers are Stella Creasy, Labour MP, and Peter O'Gorn, the Daily Mail columnist. You also have a chance to meet the distinguished creators of this podcast, so you'd be a fool to miss it. To get stuck in, then to the, the news news, um, the World Economic Forum in Davos takes place this week, which means two things. Uh, the first is that Oxfam released their statistic as to how many people now own um, the equivalent of half the world's wealth. And the second is that social media will be absolutely ablaze commenting on the number of women or lack thereof. Uh, so last year Oxfam's statistic was that 62 people, um, this is the top 1% of owners, actually own the same amount of wealth as the bottom 3.7 billion. Uh, so this year that statistic has actually gone down to 42, which means, as the BBC put it, that the top 1% of earners own 82% of the world's wealth. So, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a st- um, staggering statistic. Every single year these come out and we, and we make these... These bold claims, this isn't good enough and we need to change, but nothing really happens and nothing changes. This is what worries me. Um, and then people are still in debt and we've got no kind of movement forward or, you know, the, the richest are still the richest and the poorest are still the poorest and it's the same with countries as well as with individuals. Um, and it's something that I, you know, I think about a lot when we're thinking about of Jubilee and kind of biblical biblical thoughts around money and how much you have, you know. Jesus says that a... Um, a rich man is less likely to get into the kingdom of God than a camel is to get through the eye of a needle. We always look at these, I think, as Christians and think, how do we address this? And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how the best way to address the situation is. Um, but I think it's something that we need to keep questioning, keep having those discussions as Christians. Very much so. I think one means of addressing it, and to, to the credit of the, the World Economic Forum, maybe this is this is perhaps tokenistic, you can make your own mind up on it. Um, because of the how much it's highlighted every single year, um, that there's a huge amount of inequality when it comes to, to women in business, there are all-female chairs this year. And the significance there for me, really, um, is that if we did have more women in business, if there were more people in business in general who were encouraged to cultivate their empathy, then we might be looking at a, a more equal and considerably fairer landscape. Oxfam have attributed this really to inheritance, monopoly and cronyism. And their line year on year is that we need we need a tax plan that takes seriously the idea that it's fundamentally unjust and it's inimical to the, the Christian view on the sort of inherent equality of the, the human being and um, that the things can continue um, can continue in this light. And of course the counter argument here is always that it would be bad for growth, but I think that's orthodoxy that's being more and more upturned, most notably I suppose by the IMF in September. Uh, they released a report that said empirical results really do not support the argument whatsoever um, that cutting the, the tax that the, the top earners pay um, is, is bad for growth. Um, so it's the people who are, are making this argument, it, 
but seemed clear to us anyway with our particular standpoint that it's it's more of a, a matter of convenience yeah there's very little evidence to show that if you increase taxes the big business moves away um i think it's one of those kind of myths that we purport that um to just keep the system in place um rather than wanting to do anything or change anything about it mm -hmm. so i think it's but it's always an uphill struggle because those people who have money have power because in our world at the moment unfortunately money equals power in a lot of situations Preach. and we need to tackle that as an idea as well as tackling the grave inequalities that's around the world. So um, the next piece of news is something that came out today. Boris Johnson um, is going to push for an extra £100 million a week for the NHS. Um, now, if you work this out, that's £5.2 billion a year, um, which is about 4.8% of the current budget, um, which is quite interesting because in the past, I think pre-2010, the NHS budget is supposed to be increased by 4% to... Um, to help with ageing population and increasing the big population. But actually, since 2010, the increase in funding has only been at 1%. So this increase that he's talking about is actually trying to just go back to pre-2010. Mm. And so I think I'm, I'm a little bit lost in the kind of discussion. So I decided to have a look at, you know, we saw on the, um, on the Brexit burst that there was going to be £350 million a week for the NHS. And that figure has since been revised, Boris has said, uh, that we really underestimated the, the figure over which we could take back control. And he's revised it upwards now to, I think it's £438 million, which will be available yeah. when we leave. We'll see how that plays out. <laughs> um, but if we go back to the 350 million um, figure, that would be 8.75 billion pounds a year, which is an increase of 8.1%. And that would be a good increase. Boris says this, but he's the he's the foreign secretary. He's not the Chancellor Exchequer, he's not the health secretary. So where this money is going to come from is quite difficult. Philip Hammond's actually said that today. He's like, Mr Johnson is the foreign secretary. And so it's a lot of arguments between um, different members of the cabinet. It's all to do with kind of Brexit and fulfilling promises that were made beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so it's it seems like a war of words at the moment, but the NHS is struggling. This comes in a kind of time when patients are dying in corridors and uh, one eight patients are hit by ambulance delays. And, and of course we saw, this comes last week, as NHS figures told us that 33,000 nurses every single year are leaving the NHS. The reasons cited are stress and money. So they're overworked and underpaid, their personal lives suffer. Um, so is it any wonder whatsoever um, that this is what we've seen? Yeah, I mean, it's just that the NHS is under horrific amounts of pressure and this kind of discussion of money, I'm not sure, is a healthy one. I think we need to, unless there needs to be big strategic promises, one thing that I've read the um, NHS chiefs are saying is that um, we can't just keep topping up the NHS with extra bits of money. That's not um, how this works. We need strategic planning and we need a lot more um, long-term investment in the future of the NHS. But we must pay tribute to the amazing NHS staff who work in an incredibly and increasingly stressful environment to help their patients every day. So the final story is that um, the United States government shut down. Well, shutdown, it was only really a shutdown of three days. And I always think of shutdowns in the, the context of my native north of Ireland and in relation to us. <laughs> um, it's, it's quite a weak shutdown, really, by comparison. Um, funnily enough, a friend of mine who is currently studying in Belfast um, from, from outside uh, said, what does it really say about the government in the north of Ireland that everything shuts down and has been for over a year, uh, whereas it's, it's more or less <laughs> business as usual, um, because senior civil servants effectively take everything over. And we saw that there was a deal struck on, on the border in the end without any sort of government in place. So what does, what does that say? I'd rather not even, let's, let's not open that door, I suppose. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, the thing with the US is there is no civil service. So you kind of, um, the president brings on his own people and they do the stuff. So if, if there's a lockdown, that's a lockdown. We have no money and nothing's going on. So basically mm. what's happened is that the new budget hasn't been agreed and so there's no money and so nothing can run and so everything shuts down mm. is what happens in the US. These are the only countries that this happens to, which I think is really interesting. Um, if you look at Belgium, went for 500 days without a government. Um, as you say, Northern Ireland's gone a long time, but it is a devolved nation. We did have continuous government for 10 years before that. We were doing so well. <laughs> yes. So it's quite an interesting... Um, an interesting dynamic in the US. Um, but interesting, uh, something that I found um, fascinating was that um, the last shutdown, I think people will remember, is in 2014 when it shut down for 16 days. Um, 850,000 workers didn't go to work. That's 40% of the federal workforce. That's a large, a lot of people. <laughs> and um, that's as well 1.5 million people who aren't receiving paychecks. So that's very good impetus to try and um, get themselves together, really. Before that, there hasn't been one since 1996. So I, I don't know whether just government's getting more fractious or what's going on, but also kind of the, the reaction from Republicans to the Democrats' standoff of saying we, want, we won't let this through is kind of very bizarre. I mean, the White House had an answer for a message which said, unfortunately, we cannot answer your call today because congressional Democrats are holding government funding, including funding for our troops <coughs> and other national security priorities, Classy. hostage to an unrelated immigration debate. I mean, it's just slightly bizarre. You feel like you're in an episode of Black Mirror, which is a television show um, by Charlie Brooker, which kind of has a dystopian... Don't know dystopian future. And <laughs> <Sorry>. yeah. <laughs> um, dystopian future. I mean, just some of the stuff that comes out, I mean, it's just slightly bizarre. Um, but interesting to say the Democrats have um, stepped back and and um, let the budget go through so that money's now available and the... Um, so we won't say a happy end. ending, but things have been yeah. reinstated. Is yeah. all we can really but do you think they've they've copped out or they've kind of just caved in to let this go through? Do you think it was an honourable thing? Because a lot of Democrats are very divided on the subject. Some of them are saying that the right-wing Democrats have caved in. Mm-hmm. Um, More so what I've heard, and we know that the whole basis for this dispute, as far as the Democrats were concerned, um, was the status of, I think it's some 700,000 um, undocumented, uh, well... Americans who were, were brought to the country illegally as children, so undocumented yeah. migrants. Yeah. The dreamers. The dreamers, as they're called uh, very nicely. <laughs> um, and there wasn't any guarantee as to their, their status, whether or not they could stay in the country. Um, Obama, towards the very end of his presidency, tried to ensure that there wouldn't be any risks that they were deported. Um, Donald Trump went about trying to, to rescind the agreement, and that's why a lot of our Democrats are up in arms, because there aren't really any guarantees now as far as their status goes. Um, so again, we will have to see how things unfold, um, but that's all from us on the news this week. Now to the monthly musing with Phil Jump. I recently found myself sitting next to someone at a show in which my daughter and some others from her class were performing. Who are you, she asked. I'm sure I know you from somewhere. I paused for a minute, not sure how to answer, and then found myself offering a rather unexpected response. Well, who I am probably depends on who you are. That sounds a bit weird. But what lay behind my comment was the recognition that my life has many facets, and I didn't particularly want to go through them all with a possible stranger five minutes before the show was going to start. It could have been that she was another parent from my daughter's school, and the answer was simply, I'm Emma's dad. Or perhaps she remembered me from when one of my older children were there, and that was why she thought she knew me. 
Then again, she may have been a regular churchgoer and as a reasonably senior church leader, she maybe recognised me from something I'd spoken at or led. And I'd also been involved in a couple of recent TV interviews and I didn't really want to start banging on about that if she just knew me from the school run. I also happened to live in the neighbourhood that I grew up in and occasionally bump into people that I was at school with myself. Maybe that was where she knew me from. Or perhaps I just looked like someone else. I can't actually remember how the conversation ended, but as I reflect on it, it illustrates to me that my identity is not something that can exist in isolation from others. How I describe myself, whether or not I consider myself to be different or similar to others, depends on how I understand them. If you call me a scouser, you're connecting me with other people who come from the city of Liverpool. If you call me middle-aged, you're perhaps distinguishing me from people who are under 35. You could call me a man, a northerner, a Christian, a minister, English, British, European. And each of these has a potential to connect or disconnect me from others. Sometimes depending on nothing more than whether you choose to attach similar labels to them. In the situation in question, this is little more than a light-hearted observation. But it has the potential to be something much more sinister. There are many quite harmful narratives circulating in the political arena at the moment that we might collectively describe as othering. Through them, people become identified by what makes them different, which in turn generates the idea that some of us belong more than others. Once we buy into ideas like that, we can easily be persuaded to see other people as a problem, a threat, a drain on society or some other negative idea. This seems to be an element of human nature that's existed for centuries. When we read the Gospels, we discover that the society in which Jesus lived could be quite prone to othering. Gentile, Samaritan, Pharisee, Sadducee, Roman citizen, Greek, slave, free, were all terms that reflected the divisions and distinctions that very easily became the lenses of hatred, prejudice and discrimination through which others were perceived. And like some impositions of power today, there were many of Jesus' contemporaries who considered those kind of attitudes to be quite acceptable and normal. When we realise this, we begin to recognise how radical and world-changing his teaching was. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you might sound like a domestic platitude today. But when Jesus first uttered these words, they were an invitation to radically recalibrate people's engagement with a highly divided world. When he told stories in which Levites and priests were displaced by a despised Samaritan as the central hero, this was considered outrageous by those who'd been conditioned by the racist narratives that constantly put Samaritans down. And what are the equivalent terms in our society today? Refugee? Asylum seeker? Migrant worker? Benefit claimant? Who you are depends on who I am. A fellow child of God, made in God's image, whose identity is of sacred worth, or a problem to be solved, a statistic to be recorded, a threat to my self-interest. It strikes me that this basic understanding of human identity, and a refusal to be seduced by the labels and assumptions that some seek to promote, underpins a great deal of our work as Christians in the public square. Sometimes we have the chance to change that world, but always 
we are called to live as followers of Jesus within it. And if we follow Jesus, we can only ever see others as those he loves, values and invites to be our sisters, brothers and neighbours. Good morning and the warmest of welcomes to the inaugural episode of the podcast with Herringburn and Rachel Allison. We are live from Fielding House with our first ever interviewee, Jonathan Bartley. Jonathan, thank you very much for, for being here with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honoured to be the first. Thank you. I feel that we know you better than you know yourself at this stage. It sounds a little ominous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with everything we've read. But for any listeners unaware, uh, Jonathan is a born and bred Londoner. His passion for social justice took him to London School of Economics, where he studied social policy. Uh, following graduation, he worked on a cross-party basis for four years, including as Major's researcher during his election campaign. He was vice chair of the Electoral Reform Society and yes to fairer votes uh, during the 2011 AU referendum. And he joined the Green Party in 2010, following an altercation on Channel 4 News uh, with David Cameron over places for disabled children in mainstream schools, which was of course inspired by your own experience as a father of a disabled child. Um, you rose from a member of the party um, to its co-leader in four years, uh, which is a position that you share in a very pioneering arrangement with Caroline Lucas. Uh, you managed to increase the green vote share in your constituency of Streatham fivefold in the 2015 general election. Otherwise, you're a father of three. Um, he plays drums uh, for his group, the Mustangs. I was nominated for Blues Drummer of the Year in 2010. The band will love that you said his group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but most notably of all, uh, Jonathan is a friend of the, the Joint Public Issues team. Uh, so again, for anyone unaware, uh, JPIT is an initiative for four churches, the Methodist Church, the United Reformed Church, Baptist Union and the Church of Scotland. Uh, what role, if any, should faith play in politics? What have the difficulties been for you sure. in trying to combine the two? And what do you feel are maybe the biggest misconceptions about, say, Christianity in particular? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've written a book on this, so yeah. <laughs> it's hard to condense. Yes. Um, uh, it's called Faith and Politics After Christendom. This is about 10 years ago. Yes. Which I am very critical, always have been very critical, uh, because of my faith, of institutional religion. Uh, I'm very pro disestablishment of the church. I believe in uh, there should be no privileging of religion uh, if. Uh, faith has ideas they should stand on their own merits and not because of any special place so that's why I don't believe there should be uh, discrimination in admissions to faith schools that's why I don't believe there should be bishops appointed to the second chamber of Parliament um, it's why I think there should be disestablishment um, but I think that faith has just some amazing ideas to offer um, when I was working in the House of Commons in the early 90s four years I got a letter uh, across my desk from a guy I think it was called George Dent um, and he said I've got this great idea how about a, a year of cancelling debt of the uh, most indebted nations in the world mm. in the year 2000 yes. and I kind of nearly fell off my chair laughing you know I was just across the road from where we were sitting now I remember when, it, when I got the letter and um, I thought you know this is just not on the political agenda you know cancelling debt in the developing world what a ridiculous idea uh, but of course six years later the G8 was sitting around saying not can we cancel debt in the developing world but which country's debt can we cancel and it was because this uh, religious idea, this Jewish idea, this Christian idea uh, got some traction, got campaign groups behind it, got churches behind it, then got unions behind it, then got civil service uh, society groups behind it and the whole agenda shifted 
uh, and it was just quite remarkable and that really encourages me I think um, you've got to remember that there's some really terrible things from the history of Christianity within Western Europe yes. primarily I think I'm because the, the north of Ireland, there you go so I, don't I have can to definitely agree on that one yeah. you know all about it and which is another reason why I don't think we should have segregation in you know schools along religious lines um, but the the whole um, idea that you can bring about huge change um, through religious ideas um, really really excites me uh, and I think you know something that I'm a member of the Green Party because for me that is the natural expression of my faith and that's not to say that there aren't people in other parties who feel that their party is the natural expression of their faith but you know the fact that I'm a member of the Green Party perhaps tells you a lot about you know what my faith is like. Mm -hmm. And on that note you have said I don't understand those who say they're religious but don't feel that climate crisis is something to be urgently tackled. So could you elaborate a bit on why you see those two things as interconnected? Sure. The, um, we know that uh, the Bible, the biblical text, has been read from a position of power, you know, for particularly in Western Europe, 1700 years, because of that alignment of church and power. Uh, you go to other communities around the world where you have more oppressed religious communities that aren't aligned with government, and they read the Bible in a very different way. And you know, some of the stories... Uh, some of the parables you know, will come out with completely different meanings for a, uh, a Christian community in South America than they will for a Christian community in the US or, or the UK. Um, you know, for example, the parable of the talents um, you know, is, for many people in South America, a warning against rich rulers who will exploit you. <laughs> Whereas when we uh, read it in this country, it's about making your wealth increase. You know, it depends on what perspective you're, you're coming to the parable from. Um, and the same you know, with the climate crisis, we have misread particularly uh, some verses in the creation narrative in Genesis um, to mean subjection, uh, subjugation of what Christians would talk about as creation, uh, rather than cultivation, uh, real stewardship and nurture uh, of the world. And it's also uh, about an eschatological view, you know, the view of what happens in the end times. Um, many Christians will believe it's all going to burn, it's all <laughs> going to get you know, burnt up and everyone will be raptured. Um, when I read my Bible, it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, the idea that things will be put right, the idea that uh, things will be put back to how they were perhaps originally intended to be, if you believe that there was, is a God who um, kind of had an had a idea about what the world and the universe should be. Um, so you know, fundamental to my faith uh, is the idea of looking after the world um, and starting to make things right again and tackling the things that are going wrong. As to um, other matters of, of green policy, um, when we look to your response to the refugee crisis, both you and Caroline Lucas have been recently very vocal about immigration detention, um, which I feel there's a lot of momentum about at the minute. Um, you're both as well very vocal um, and unapologetically so about the positive impact of migrants on the economy. And you recently visited Calais with Help Refugees, which I did myself oh, uh, just, just last Easter. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the experience that you had there? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll say from the outset, this issue makes me really, really angry. The, the idea that we are the fifth richest economy in the world, um, but less than 30 miles from the shore of our country is a refugee crisis with what were hundreds of unaccompanied children sitting there and our response of our government was to build a wall in Calais, you know, a la Donald Trump, you know, um, and turn its back and, and you know, we all know about the Dubs Amendment which should have allowed 480 unaccompanied children into the UK. This government has only now taken 200 and we had to fight for that amendment. Yes. Um, 
you know, under the Dublin measures, you know, Dublin Three, which is the other family reunification um, measure in which children who have relatives, close relatives, very close relatives in the UK have a right to come in here, you know, still we're closing the door. Um, so I've been back three times. Uh, one of the first things I did after I came leader was to go to Calais and I went to the jungle camp before it was um, bulldozed. And I went to Dunkirk uh, before that camp was, was burnt to the ground. And I've been, I was there again um, about 10 days ago. And now, uh, because of what this government is doing, let's, you know, this government is paying millions of pounds, not just to build a wall, which cost 2.3 million, but also uh, paying the French police who are abusing migrant children on the streets. Uh, and these migrant children, and I met dozens of them, and saw dozens of them are now living in the forests and the woods around um, Calais uh, and Dunkirk and the little kind of brush areas. They are routinely being abused by the police who are paid for by this government. So the, the help refugees and other charities will give them sleeping bags and blankets. Mm -hmm. And then the police come in that night and they take them all away. Yes. And, and, and it's absolutely freezing there. Mm -hmm. I met a 10 year old child um, who's, who's trying to get to the UK. Um, I met another guy. I said, what are you doing here? He pulled up his jumper and he showed me five bullet holes where he's from Afghanistan, where the Taliban had shot him. You know, this is atrocious that we would turn our backs. Uh, and, you know, for those that say it's not my issue, you know, these people should claim asylum or refuge in the, in, in the closest country to the one they're fleeing. Um, I would say, you know, if, if our government would treat these kinds of people in this way and think they can get away with it, you know this is how they would treat you if they knew they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't just about, you know, in, in, in terms of Christianity, love of neighbour, it isn't about the power of the Good Samaritan walking by on the other side of the road. It's actually recognising that everyone is of equal worth, made in the image of God, uh, have the same value. And there is a link between the way our country is treating refugees and the way our government is treating the disabled uh, and everyone else who is marginalised uh, in, in our country. And if we do not speak up for these people, we know that it won't be long before we're next. And I think we need to be very, very clear and learn the lessons of history in that respect. Mm. On that same note, you linked there um, the issue with, with disability. You've spoken before about your son Samuel and how his disability has, um, in your words, profoundly affected uh, mm. your view of life. Um, of course, as we touched on earlier, what many people might know you for most even um, was the the difficulty you had with, with David Cameron and his insistence that disabled children could not be educated in mainstream schools. Um, how do you see this link into your faith, or do you indeed see a link into your faith? Yeah, I, uh, the whole idea, and it's, it's, it's great, you know, a lot of theology that, that looks at the disabled Christ as well, and, and looks at, um, you know, there's the, the whole idea of the incarnation, where an omnipresent, omnipresent omniscient God takes human form, you know, that in a sense um, can be seen as impairment, if you like. Um, and, but it's, it's really about, I, I, I'm passionate about inclusion and, and what I see in the Gospels is uh, about Jesus putting those who are vulnerable, potentially excluded, who might be at a disadvantage, those who have impairments, at the centre of things. Uh, you know, and, a lot, and women who are excluded. You know, he, he welcomes women right into the centre of the community and the community changes for the better as a result. He welcomes all, anyone who's seen as you know, oppressed um, and, and brings them right into the centre of the community. And that shakes things up radically. And what I saw with um, Samuel, my son, was when he started at his school, that whole school beginning to change because of the presence of a child who would otherwise have been excluded, mm -hmm. would have been different. 
it came, he was brought home to me on his first sports day where they, they lined him up with the rest of his class to run uh, the 100 metres, run in inverted commas, because he's in his little powered wheelchair. And so all the other kids like run off down the track you know, after the starting gun goes and the penultimate child crosses the finishing line and there's a silence descends, uh, you know, all the children and teachers and children watching and all the focus switches to my son, Samuel, who's like halfway down the track, mm -hmm. pushing his joystick as far forward on his little power wheelchair as he possibly could. Uh, and then suddenly one person starts chanting his name and then other people join in, Samuel, Samuel, and they cheer him down the last half of the track until mm -hmm. he gets across the finishing line and he finishes last. But at that point in that school, you know, we always tell our kids it's the taking part that matters, not the winning. But deep down inside, we love it when our kids <laughs> win. But I can honestly say, at that moment in that school, because of the presence of that child with a disability, every child, every parent, every um, teacher knew that it really was the taking part that mattered, not the winning. And we have a culture of uh, marketization. Uh, someone, you know, talk about, we'll call it capitalism or neoliberalism, whatever label you want to put on it. We have this um, culture of, of market forces purveying our NHS, our schools, our hospitals. Uh, it's obviously present in the economy through the privatisation agenda. Um, and it excludes all those who can't kind of keep up. Mm. Um, but you can challenge those values in our schools by putting those who are vulnerable front and centre stage. And this is what worries me about the loss of our common spaces, uh, the commons, uh, the, the loss of libraries, public spaces, the closure of pubs, those spaces, those public spaces where there was difference and diversity are being lost and particularly with what's happening with the welfare cuts against uh, the disabled uh, and the closure of, you know, for example, community centres and libraries, those uh, people who are vulnerable are being excluded and marginalised and less visible and aren't mm. any longer at the centre of society and so we're going in the wrong direction and for decades Disabled people have been at the forefront of fighting for disabled rights. Where the slogan was "Nothing about us without us," and you know they were there, front and center, and they won these hard rights. And and we always thought it would go on getting better, but you know what? It hasn't just stopped. It started to get worse again, and that is a real worry. And we need to put disabled voices, disabled people, front and center, you know, at the heart of our society. And I believe that when we do, we will see society change for the better. In the same way, you know, that is that radical model of inclusion that I see in the Gospels and that Jesus championed too. On that note, as far as you uh, talk, talk about um, disability rights, um, just fading out of public view mm. in a way, I suppose a very marked example of that was Philip Hammond's comments the week yeah. before last. And of course, Caroline Lucas picked up in PMQs. She asked him to apologise. She asked him to retract them. Um, do you have any comments yourself to make um, about his, his illusion, more or less, that the reason why there was less productivity in the British economy today was because more disabled workers were employed. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember reading a press release, you know, from Scope saying that this just has, has no evidence to it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It isn't um, just a misunderstanding. There is no evidence base to what he said uh, whatsoever. But it, it, I think, typifies a wider problem in Parliament. You know, disabled people are incredibly underrepresented in Parliament. Mm -hmm. I, I was proud at the 2017 election. Um, I think it's 14% of our candidates were disabled. Yes. You know, parliamentary candidates. Um, which is about representative of the population, and I want the Green Party to be a party that really represents modern Britain, you know, and, and has that true representation. And we've got a long way to go in that, mm -hmm. but the House of Commons has even further to go, yes. you know, in that. Um, and there's a massive underrepresentation, unless we have those voices of disabled people front and centre uh, in Parliament, uh, and I think slightly better in the Lords, mm -hmm. um, we aren't going to get those issues on the agenda. Um, so, you know, Philip 
Hammond's comments were clearly wrong. He still, as far as I understand, has not apologised, which is absolutely outrageous. Um, he should apologise, uh, but there is a wider issue around approaches to disability and misunderstandings of disabled people, which I think will only be rectified by having more disabled representation in Parliament. So to turn again to uh, representation um, in a different form, uh, UCL produced research in 2015, uh, which addressed apparent lack of diversity in the Green Party. It noted that as far as its candidates went, I think the number was at 4%. slightly below UKIP. And this is in spite of the fact that the Greens have spoken very pointedly about race issues and went as far as to produce a BME manifesto. Mm -hmm. So why do you think it is that you're really making the effort to bridge that gap and to make politics as inclusive as possible, um, but that that isn't necessarily being heard? Yeah, I mean, in my uh, constituency in 2015, uh, so in my, in my borough of Lambeth, um, two of the three candidates who stood there, parliamentary candidates, were BME, mm -hmm. you know, and that was representative of the community, and I was really proud of that, and I think that's really, really important. Uh, we've got a holistic review going on at the moment, um, looking at how we can better represent modern Britain. So there's a massive amount of work that needs to be done. There is a huge amount of work that needs to be done in the Green Party, and we put our hands up uh, to that. Um, so when Caroline and I were um, elected as co-leaders uh, just over a year ago, this is one of the things we said has to change in the Green Party. Uh, and this is one of the things that we were pushing forward very, very hard. So you've spoken then about structural inequality, which of course is very difficult to address. Um, in a joint Guardian article as well, yourself and Caroline Lucas said that our start, starting point is nothing short of the liberation of the human spirit. So how would you respond to the, the criticism that these are claims made from the fringes, made from the luxury of never having sort of been in government in a substantial enough way to have your records tarnished? Um, I, I would say that we, in the current context and in this century coming up, we will be the most influential party in British politics. And let me qualify that because it sounds like a very bold claim. There would not be a hung parliament now if we hadn't stood aside in 20 or so seats. Go and, you know, go and look at the maths. In those seats that we stood aside, that was enough to change uh, what happened in the election and to bring about the hung parliament. Why have we got the hung parliament now? Because of what the Greens did. Why have we got a Labour Party now occupying the ground that it does because of the massive vote, because of the massive green surge that we got on an anti-austerity platform, because we campaigned for five, six, seven years on anti-austerity. Um, Labour looked at it and said, you know, we've got to win that vote and they moved into our territory. It's no secret that Labour took five or six or seven of the big ideas from the Green Party manifesto and then took them on. You know, that's change. Um, we, what we've seen over the last few um, years is essentially a country run by UKIP, you know, mm. who had fewer, now has less parliamentary representation than we do. Um, but it managed to change British politics and set the whole agenda. The Green Party has actually, when you look at what's gone on, set the whole agenda for British politics now and is shifting things in the right direction. So when I was working in Parliament in uh, the early 90s, one of my heroes was Tony Benn. And uh, when he retired, he said, I'm leaving the House of Commons to concentrate on politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was his conviction after 50 years working in Westminster, actually it's movements that change things. Um, we are an electoral force, we're not a pressure group, we are an electoral force, but because we stand, because we win votes, it means that other parties have to then you know, try and take our vote from us um, and, and shift agendas, just in the way UKIP has shifted things to the right, we've shifted things to the left. And when Labour goes up and sells out freedom of movement, as it has done over Brexit, when it 
doesn't talk about ending indefinite detention, when it doesn't talk about welcoming but refugees, when I, it has controls on immigration mugs, you know, for I'm sale. I'm not sure that we could say that. The APPG um, head of refugees, Langham Debonair, yeah. her sole remit these days almost is on ending indefinite detention. That has been a real I'm talking about Labour Party policy. Um, you show me the point in Labour's manifesto where it says it will end indefinite detention. Uh, you won't be able to find it because it ain't there. <laughs> <laughs> So as not to broadcast fake news, we just thought we would clear up that Labour's 2017 manifesto actually does indeed have a commitment to ending indefinite detention. It's on page 28 for anyone who's interested. Um, John, no, then, I mean, as much as okay. I would love to, <laughs> to speak to you all day, um, that's, that's us out of time, I'm afraid. Thank so you. thank you again so much for joining us today. Thank you very much.